Romans. We're in chapter 8 now. So let's go ahead and turn there. Um, after our message, uh, we will uh, sing, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together, have a couple announcements, and then uh, a couple minutes after the service, anybody who would like to join us, um, head up to the auditorium, and we'll just uh, we'll just have a, a short word of prayer together, um, praying for, for the Lord's, Lord's work and the Lord's kingdom. Um, I'm going to have Jason Cummings going to read our scripture reading, um, connecting the end of chapter 7 with chapter 8. Um, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, will be our focus this morning, but we'll start at verse chapter 7. Yes, good morning. As he already said, Romans chapter 7, verse 21 is where we'll begin. If you'd like to follow. Romans 7, 21 through chapter 8, verse 4. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful to gather together, brothers and sisters together, redeemed through Jesus, what he's done. Lord, may your word this morning um, break down and conquer our hearts and our minds the truth of what you've accomplished through Christ in us. As we desire to follow you and have our minds on the Spirit through your word, Lord, maybe we just have the spirit of rejoicing of the conquering of sin and death. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I am a uh, long-suffering New York Jets fan, as you all probably know. And uh, they finally got a coach that I think might be a decent pick here. That's beside the point, most of you don't care. Um, 
The Jets are one of those teams that snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> some of you enjoy some of those movies or sporting events that show a team doing what they should do, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Think of classic films like Hoosiers, the Gene Hackman, or Remember the Titans. It's thrilling to see that happen, but a lot of times you might be thinking, yeah, that, that doesn't happen to me in real life. Paul wants us to understand in Romans 8 that in the spiritual realm, that should be the normal Christian life. Quote, Watchman, the disciple of Hudson Taylor. We read chapter 7, Life Without the Spirit, and there was a defeatism, it feels like, in that chapter until you get to the end there. Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. But it's turned around by the victory that is made possible by chapter 8. Up till this time, there's really been only one explicit reference to the Spirit, and that's in chapter 1 of Romans. And now it's going to appear about 20 times, the Holy Spirit. When England uh, was the empire where the sun never set because of its expansion, <coughs> they had taken control of India, and there was a mutiny of the, uh, the Indians... Uh, of India against the English army. And there's a time where the English army was shut up in a city. They were besieged, almost at the point of death from starvation. And they were decimated by the, the constant assaults of the Indian uh, army. And there was a Scottish girl who belonged to a Highland regiment, and she said that she heard, she thought she heard the sound of bagpipes afar off, and the soldiers kind of laughed at her to scorn. I mean, she was in a faraway country, and, uh, and with a situation that was going on, certainly she could be imagining it. But after a little time, others began to hear it. And there soon came in, note after note here, these bagpipes. And pretty soon, by and by, the instruments of a full military band were recognized. And soon, from out of the forest and the jungle, came the relief army for the British that broke up the siege and gave them rescue and deliverance and salvation. And with flying colors and music, they marched up to the now-released city. And that's where we are in Romans chapter 7 and 8 here. That's where we are. In that seventh chapter, toward the end, you hear that far-off note of bagpipes. Of victory. And after that music here, that mournful music of, of Paul's wretchedness and poverty and moral bankruptness and frustration, comes this explanation at the end of chapter 7. I thank God through Jesus, Messiah, anointed King, our Lord. And then in chapter 8, he breaks into a discussion of the Spirit. The answer and the redemption of the body. And there's little little pieces here and then of that victorious note at the end of chapter 7. And now you're hearing more of the instruments growing stronger and fuller. And then he comes down to the end of chapter 8 and he breaks out. Who and what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And there you have the full banners. You have the flying army. Uh, you, have the, you have the band. You have, you have everything. But in order to appreciate that, you have to appreciate what's happened so far in the letter. Remember in chapter 1, he's 
listed the gospel in verses 2 through 4 and said that he's excited to see this at work among the Roman church, these probable five households meeting there in Rome, perhaps up to the number of 200 in a very, very large city, many of them probably in the poorer section of the city, Jew and Gentile, and they're experiencing some culture wars. Culture wars between Jews who have grown up in Moses' law and Gentiles who had it and had come to find the liberation from sin and freedom in Christ. And the Jews had been exiled by the emperor and they had returned and now the church was mostly Gentile. And there were some growing pains that were happening. You read about them in chapter 14 in particular. And Paul looks at this church as a strategic church as, 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 his, as his church where he came from in Antioch in the east was for the propagation of the gospel in the east. Now he looks at Rome as a strategic church for the propagation of the gospel, the founding of churches to the west. And he wants to go all the way to Spain. And so he sees Rome as the answer to this. And he needs a strategic partnership with them. But they're strained over things that shouldn't matter. Over things that pale in comparison to the glorious gospel. And so he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. To understand what really matters. Because the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Peace and joy. This fullness in the, in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. Changed lives. And so in chapter 1 he said that he is, uh, he is not ashamed to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the saving, risen, ascended, enthroned, returning king. He's not ashamed of that, because it's the saving power of the king. It changes. And then in chapter 7, he says it changes because it transforms the righteousness of God, transforms our lives. The faithfulness of Jesus all the way to the cross and his resurrection and victory transforms his followers for resurrection and victory over death and sin. But then in chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, I want to remind you why this good news is so good. Because chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us that the problem is we are under the wrath of God. Because chapter 118-32 tells us our, our, our core problem as human beings is we are worshipers. That's our problem. But we've redirected our worship from the creator of all things to worshiping created things. And that's the problem. And when we do that, we get our eyes off the glory of God and we start navel-gazing and it deteriorates and it's awful. It destroys us. And he lists some of the things that have gone on in history that you can trace out with, with, with nations and civilizations. And they, are, they run further and further away from God until they just basically commit spiritual suicide. And then in chapter 2, he tells the Jewish people who had grown up in Moses' law and tried to keep the letter in the box, or he says, and the other problem is, those who are trying to keep God's law in their own power, in their own flesh, and have the same problems. You see, the problem is not the outside. The problem is the inside of the heart. And what you need is a new heart that comes by the Spirit. And so then in chapter 3, he groups everybody together and he says, 
this is what sin looks like. Running away from God. We're all rebels and rebellious in nature. And he lays out the things with our tongues, the way we speak to people, our thoughts, the things we think. And he says, based on what the scripture says, and I'm going to anchor this in the Old Testament, Paul says, every mouth should be silenced before God of any accusations of innocence. Every mouth is stopped. And then it says this in chapter 3. The world has become, is declared guilty before God. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, Moses' law, there shall no flesh, no body, be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. He's going to pick up on that in chapter 7. But then he says, But now the righteousness of God without the law, apart from the law, is manifest and revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, to all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. There's no special privilege for Jew and Gentile. It's those who believe, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, declared perfect, righteous in God's sight, freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God has set forth to be a propitiation. He has satisfied God's demands through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission, the forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that Christ, God, might be just and the justifier, the one who declares one free from the penalties of the law, the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. And Paul says, you want to brag? You want to brag about your superior culture, where you came from? Here's where you need to center your brag and boast that's in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. And this is accessed in chapter 4 by faith. And he says, exhibit A, Abraham. Exhibit B, David. And then Abraham again. And then in chapter 5, there's these verses that you kind of wonder about. But where does it fit in the context? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And he says in chapter 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. And what he's saying is this, is that the shame you had apart from Christ, now you've received honor and glory in Christ. Not by anything you've done, but because of the one who secured that glory. And chapter 8 will be all, all about glory. And he says, because of this, God can take even your, your circumstances and the events of your present life now that are difficult, and he's going to produce something. He's going to produce something. Uh, verse 4, patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope makes not ashamed. You don't live in shame and penalty and sentencing and guilt because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. He's going to go in the free gift of, talk about the free gift of grace in Christ and take two representatives. Adam, the first man created and how all of us were represented in Adam and we sinned when Adam sinned because we would have done the same thing. And then Jesus Christ the faithful one, the obedient one who went to the cross, resurrected, and freely bestows grace on us in chapter 5. 
So that so much grace and so stunning and so much greater than our sin. It's not like there's we're Star Wars here, you know, with, with dualism here. You have sin and then you have grace, and this grace won this time. No. This grace engulfed sin and death. That God is so gracious that some would even misunderstand his grace. So Paul says, shall we, what shall we say then in chapter 6? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, grace engulfs sin. Then sin doesn't matter. And Paul says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? And know ye not that so many of us that were baptized in Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that light as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And Paul says, the resurrection changes everything. Sin canceled your condemnation. The resurrection empowered you for your life. You don't have a gospel without the resurrection. The gospel is not simply the cross. The cross is part of it. And a key part of it. You have to have the resurrection to live in your life. And so we'll go through and describe how the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, 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 is to be active in our lives. All the time. As we render ourselves dead to Christ, dead to sin in Christ, our union with Christ, our being in Christ, and then living to righteousness. And then in chapter 7, he picks up on something he said. Wow, what about the law of Moses? The law of Moses is the thing that said we didn't measure up to God. And Paul says, well, it doesn't mean you throw out God's law. What it means is this. Is Christ fulfilled the law on your behalf. He obeyed perfectly. The law is good, but the law is more like a mirror. It shows you where you failed to reach God's standard. But God didn't sit there looking down on you in scorn. God provided the way in Jesus Christ. One who perfectly obeyed God's law. And Paul talks about this life without the Spirit. And the answer to, to these frustrations of life is the Spirit of God. And so in chapter 8, in verses 1 through 4, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no sentencing to them which are in Christ Jesus. So what I want us to see this morning is this. That what we had talked about last week in chapter 7 about the law is going to continue in chapter 8 as far as verse 11. We're only take a short chunk there, 8, 1 through 4. And in chapter 7 we discovered that the purpose of God's law is to give life. But that doesn't happen because we've fallen short of God's glory. And it's been gloriously achieved when by the Spirit God has given resurrection life to all those who belong to the Messiah, Jesus. And so in our passage here in Romans 8, Paul reveals the but now of the gospel, the good news which addresses these problems and sin and puzzles here of the whole human race that we face. And this passage is going to open up 
a, a whole set of, of, of more discussions here. An assurance that he's going to sum up at the end of chapter 8 in verses 31 through 39. And so you have kind of the, the two bookends. 8-1 and then chapter 8, 31 through 39. And they're kind of saying the same thing. No condemnation. Welcome. Received. Never to be turned down. And then in between the sandwich here is the meat of what that all means, the new creation of the Lord Jesus. Some people have said chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. I'm not sure how you rank them. Chapter 8 covers Genesis to Revelation. Creation, fall, new creation. So Paul gives assurance here. Paul kind of develops an argument like the opening of of a flower. Some of you are going to be growing some roses or some other flowers here this spring here. And uh, just imagine, imagine a rose bush. And right now it's winter. And they're surrounded by a little bit of snow that's left from the rain. But here and there, as the, the, the weather will begin to warm and spring comes, you're going to notice some, some tiny little shoots. And at some stage in the late spring, or here in May, June, right, July, they're going to turn into some rose buds. And then these rosebuds are going to open up and reveal a flower. And if you stopped and thought about it, you would reflect that that flower came from these little shoots. That rosebud was contained in that little shoot. You connected the dots here. And so this paragraph here, chapter 8, is kind of like that. There's no condemnation for those in Messiah. So verse 2 is going to offer the beginning of an explanation, but it's so crammed, it's so packed, packed so tightly, like that rosebud, right? Before that rosebud blossoms, it's crammed, it's, it's concentrated, it's going to take up, uh, there, there's so much in there before you're going to be able to see what it means later as the passage starts to, to, to bloom. But you got to wait, you got to wait for this, for this to develop and grow, for this bud to develop and grow Verse 3 and 4 are going to start to open it up a little bit more. And then verses 5 and 8 are going to widen it further. And then in verses 9 through 11, that rose is going to be open and you're going to be able to smell its fragrance. So don't stop at a single verse, Paul. Context is important. See, it's part of a, 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 a development here, a larger growing statement here. So Paul says there's no condemnation. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand if any of you have ever had, have been sentenced this morning. Maybe you experienced some shade of that, whether that's from a traffic ticket that you had to show up in court, or uh, something more serious. There have been a lot of pardons lately in our, in our news. But if you ever have been sentenced and you have been pardoned, you'll appreciate what Paul says in the the pardon has lifted you from the sentencing. Now notice his description here. There is no condemnation for those who are what? Yeah. You might want to circle that word in. What does that mean? It means this. Remember in John 15 when Jesus described his life and his connection with his disciples? He describes it with an illustration of a vine and branches. The branches that come off of a grapevine. The main source and then the branches that are joined. And if the, that, um, the branches are broken off, 
Jesus is apart from me, you can do nothing. It's no good. But joined to the vine fills them with fruit. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He, he gives other illustrations of, of union, connection, and Christ. Um, besides vine and branches, he talks about himself as the shepherd and we're the sheep. That relationship. He talks about himself in John 6 as the bread of life that we eat. He talks about himself in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7 as the living water that we drink. In Colossians, he talks about how we're hidden in Christ. Why is there now no condemnation? The answer is this. Because the spirit law has set you free from the sin law. The spirit law has set you free from the sin law. Look what he says in Romans 8 and verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What does he mean by the law of the spirit? Well, he's already explained that in chapter 6. And it's this. The rule of grace that you have been under now in the spirit. The rule of grace. God's abounding kindness and strength. Rather than the measuring up to the law apart from Christ. What do we know about the Holy Spirit? What is his job? One of the ways we can answer that question is go all the way back to the creation of the world. Do you remember in Genesis 1? After it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And you know what it says next? When do things begin to happen in this formless void? The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and that word moved is like a hen, mother hen, sitting on her eggs and brooding, translating warmth, life. And what happens after that? God said, God said, God said, God said. Life begins to pop up everywhere, right? Because that is one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit. He's a person. And his job is to give life. Some of you memorized the Nicene Creed growing up in other denominations. The sustainer of life. That's his job. And that's what he does. The Spirit. The Spirit law has set you free from the sin law. You have transferred masters. And God has given you, and this has been a missing element in the preaching of our gospel. When you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. The very being of God lives inside of you. He's your master. Not in a repressive way. In a liberating way. God himself dwells in you. He strengthens you. The spirit law has set you free from the sin law. Well, why was the sin law bad? Well, the law of God was good. Paul says, I delight in the law of the Lord. But the problem was, the law could never give you life. Because of the orientation of our heart toward self. The problem was, the law revealed where we fell short. To go through the Ten Commandments, right? That's a summation of the law, and then even a more condensed summation of that is, is, uh, is loving the Lord your God with your everything. And the second, on that same level, like unto it, loving your neighbor as yourself, right? And all those 
Paul, uh, Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets on those two commands. And we have failed in that. We have failed in that. You might say, well, what's the big deal about it? Well, imagine that you uh, join the military and you're in basic training in the army. And a, uh, your sergeant comes in and you've had enough with him. You've had enough of his mouth. And so you haul off and you whack the sergeant. And you get in a lot of trouble. And then one day, and somehow they let you, you know, continue on to show you a tremendous amount of grace. And then one day a general comes up. And you see him as a representation of your problems. You haul off and whack him. What's, gonna, what's the difference in penalties there? And so it is, when we have sinned against God, we have sinned against the Almighty, ruler of the universe, the one who has only showed us kindness and grace by letting us breathe. And we have turned against him. And our sin has been against him. We failed to keep his law, which is meant to give us life. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. Because the spirit law has set you free from the sin law. But secondly, because God has acted in his Son and his Spirit to condemn sin and provide life. Notice what he says. For what the law could not do. There is an inability of the law that was good, represented God, represent God's, God's, God's heart here for, for humanity. But there is something it could not do. It was weak through the flesh. It was weak through our actual implementation of it. We could not do it. We could not keep it here. It's, it's, it's like this. So if Romans 8 is about all about life and the Spirit, the issue is this. That the law has said we are guilty under God. And measuring up to God's perfect, pure law, we've fallen short. That's the problem. But notice what he says in the rest of that verse there. In verse <clears throat> verse 3. For what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh. It was powerless to save us. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin and flesh. What the law could not do, what we could not do, God did. God did. Here's the thing. <laughs> we could identify with Paul in Romans 7, things I don't want to do, I end up doing the things I don't want to do, I end up And there's no way we can free ourselves from the sentencing that we justly deserve in God's law. Our stripes against the anvil have only worn out our hammers. But what did God do? God did what we could not do. God sent his own son, the verse says. What does that mean? Well, God has always had a perfect, eternal relationship before creation through creation and after. The Father, Son, and Spirit. And God the Father sent His Son. The word send there is a word that's used of a military envoy, a representative of the military. He sent His Son. And how did He send His Son? 
The scripture says right here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. God didn't send his son to be a sinner. God sent his son to take on humanity and come under the curse of sin. You think about the things that Jesus experienced. Rejection, thirst. Jesus is fully human. God the Son took on, added a human nature. Jesus was fully human. All bodily functions. And he put himself under the bondage here of decay. Pure. Never sinned. What Paul's talking about here, this is, this is a great Christmas passage, is the Incarnation. The Incarnation. God sent His Son to be fully human, as one who's fully God. And why did He do that? Paul says, the idea is on account of sin. On account of sin. On account of what sin's cancer uh, spiritually was doing to us. Because of the, 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 the corruption here, he sent his son. And what did he do through his son? He condemned sin through Christ's embodiment here as a human being. Hebrews 2 is a great chapter to read in regards to this. The Son of God became man just like us. Tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. He experienced the full experience of humanity, yet held up God's law, perfectly obedient. He condemned sin in the flesh. He became that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice. He was treated as one who failed God's law, though he is perfect. He was a representative. He was the one who, who, who we would say it was the vicarious substitution. He stood in our place, in other words, at the cross. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that His transaction is applied to us. And this is atonement. The payment for sin at the cross. The law is just requirement. Later on in chapter 13, Paul will say, it's summed up in this, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Just requirement. And what we're seeing here in chapter 8 is something the Old Testament prophets said would happen. Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel 36, God would give his people Israel a new heart and a new spirit, his own spirit to dwell within them. Paul's linking back there. So he sent his son. Well, why did he do that? Well, You'll notice at the end of verse 4 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What Paul's saying is this, and he said this in chapter 6 and verse 23, there are two types of human beings. Only two types. There's lots of different ethnicities, but that's not of importance to Paul. There's only one human race, by the way. One but there are two types of human beings. And Paul says, you're the spirit type. You're not the natural man. You're supernatural. What he means by
by that is this. The natural man, the one who just goes to the default ways of whatever he wants to do. Feels good, do it, right? You think it'll make you happy, you know, do it. Look for self. Paul says, you are not a mere miracle. You have the spirit of God dwelling in you. You are the spirit type. Why? Because you're awesome? No, because you're not awesome. None of us are. Our boast is in Christ. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be building us and do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Walk, live according to the flesh. That means live under law in bondage. Live according to spirit. Live under grace and this freedom here. A freedom to now become more and more like Christ. Chapter 8 and verse 29. You've been liberated now to do that, to be that, because that is what you are. You're a new creation. You are a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22, right here in the broken world. The new life in you is a cup full of the new creation we will all fully one day experience in Christ. Listen, Christian holiness sometimes is portrayed as some painstaking conformity to the, to the specific precepts of an external law code. But in describing it that way, you're missing things. It is the Holy Spirit producing the life of God in your life. Reproducing those graces that were seen in the perfection of the life of Christ. What we call fruit. The law prescribed a way of life of holiness, but it was powerless to produce such a life. Because of the inadequacy of the human material in which it was working. Imagine you went up into uh, an attic and you stopped at an antique store along the way here, which is St. Elmer's on 317. And you saw this beautiful lamp. It's a little tarnished, but you're like, yeah, that's got some potential. I can do something with it. And you bought it. And you brought it home, and you went to look for the cord, and there was no cord. And you realized that what it was, was a relic from the past century, early century. In the late 1800s, it was a gas lamp. It was useless. But now supposing you rewired it, and you put in the infrastructure for it to produce the light, and you could plug it into your receptacle, in the same way, we're like that gas lamp here. We could produce a light. But Christ reworked our infrastructure. It's called a new heart. It's called the Holy Spirit living in us. And we're now plugged into the power source here. And through faith and through surrender to Jesus as our master, we can shine for Jesus. The law before was a death sentence. We didn't have the infrastructure inside, but through grace, through Christ, we have, because of Jesus effectively overcoming in his death, the fruits of that victory are transferred, made good to us, to all that are in him. When we realize that, someone's put it like this. It's Jesus Christ, Paul said in Romans 7.25, thanks be to God for Christ. 
The law you can think of is like this. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. It's like telling a paralyzed person to run the 50-yard dash, right? But better news than gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Spirit. Paul's point is this. We are transformed for glory. And he's going to spend a lot of time on that in the next chapter. And there is now no condemnation because of all this. Because of all this. Rejoice. Rejoice. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize that bondage and that frustration and that exhaustion trying to keep God's law apart from him. And you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, thanks be to God for his victory on my behalf. Today's call for you is to turn from that trying to run the 50-yard dash without legs and turn to Jesus to provide us new life. Believers, we can live this way too. That's why the gospel is not just, oh, that's what I did when I asked Jesus into my heart. It's day by day, reckoning that I am dead to sin and condemnation and alive to Jesus. Alive to Jesus, victory in Jesus. There's a song about this, it's called And Can It Be. No condemnation now I dread. I'm alive in him, my living hope, he says in the lines. And he pictures himself in a dark dungeon, a prison. Without hope. And then the door began to swing open. And a ray of light pierced his heart. And he's been set free. And he's overwhelmed and he says, and can it be? And Paul says, it is done. 